Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and the Apple event time loop we're all stuck in. I'm Joe Simpson. I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing pretty good, Joe. How you doing? Good. Good job getting that beta out. Like <laughs> Thank you. said you, you were going to. I, I did. I didn't quite make the self-imposed drop-dead timeline. Um, hmm. I missed it by about an hour. But... Uh, I uh, got it out. It took a while, as anticipated. Um, it probably took longer to put together the change release notes yeah, than to actually wrap the code up and send it out. At least, aside from the fact that part of my delay was the Apple notarization process was down. Hmm, fun. And so I'm sitting there with a perfectly releasable Windows version... And perfect release notes, but no Mac version yet. <laughs> I'm like, I, I'm not in a situation right now where I have to push this out, even just for the deadline. I'll wait and see if they get this fixed, and about an hour later, I could push it through. So, yay! Yeah, I mean, if you hadn't mentioned being an hour late, no one would know, would have known because the show comes out on Monday. <laughs> That's about all I'll commit to. I can't. Whenever it's ready. I think I might have actually said something like noon on this date, which was okay. just stupid. But <laughs> I mean, it's it's noon somewhere. So. Yeah. Um, in general, the commentary has been good. The overall trend still in comments is more about feature requests than bug reports, okay. which is awesome and makes me nervous. <laughs> um, my guess is the bug reports will almost certainly increase once we hit full release and we can get mm -hmm. even more users into the software. Um, probably my biggest concern overall is that too many people that I talk to who are FM perception users just aren't aware of the existence of FM comparison. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, I can understand somebody being aware of it and saying... I'm not a beta tester kind of person. I'll wait for the full release. Totally makes sense. But these are people that I talk to who haven't heard about its existence or forthcomingness in any capacity, or at least not in any way that has actually broken into their conscious thought process. Mm -hmm. You know, people have like, I heard the name and then it just went by. So have you thought about putting anything in FM Perception? Just maybe like a, uh, you know, now included with your FM perception license type of splash screen or page or notification dot or something. Yeah, I, I considered it. Um, I haven't completely thrown it away. Uh, I had a conversation with Todd Geist about that exact topic. And he was talking about how he'd done some similar things in some of his systems. Basically just setting up like a news feed in the software so that you can provide information to your users. And I know apps that do it. And most of the time I just click to get rid of the thing because I'm, when I'm opening it, I want to do what I want to do and don't talk to me about your other stuff that's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and that was Todd's experience as well from the other side is that the actual engagement percentage on those kinds of messages is vanishingly small. What's the difference between, there's a difference here between trying to make a sale 
for another app versus letting people that already pay for something know that they have access to something new. Yes, but they have to read it enough to realize that there is a difference. Yeah. That you're not doing the one and you're actually doing the other. And that's why I mean literally starting now included with your FM perception license, like in big text. Yeah. <laughs> making it really clear. There is no click here to buy right. button. Yeah. Um Yeah. I mean it's it's not a bad idea. It's, Do you still have diffing in the uh, UI for FM perception? I do. That would be an interesting spot to put it. Yeah. But there's no analytics in FM perception. So mm -hmm. I don't know how often particular features are being used. Like the people who use the diff tool in FM perception are definitely strong candidates for people who would be interested in FM comparison. Mm -hmm. The bigger concern is the people who tried it once and didn't like it yeah and will never go to that screen again yeah so maybe put something in the app and maybe the only other thing i can think of is maybe doing something with filemaker influencers for lack of a better term uh-huh then you know the people who are constantly blogging and making videos in the community see if any of them want to do an article or a video on it or an interview or a demo. And, and now that I think about it, something that does have a much higher level of engagement, A, is really simple for me to do and doesn't add any code overhead, is I can also, on the next FM Perception release, put it in the release notes for FM Perception. Mm-hmm. So that when the new FM Perception version comes out, because people do, even if they don't read those in detail, they at least glance at the header. Yeah. Um, and just throwing, like you said, some big text there that goes, hey, here's a cool new thing. And then there's also the fact that once, once FM Comparison hits full release, FM Perception uh, trial users will be able to use it. Mm -hmm. So the informational pages for both applications need to change and stuff like that. And that's all further down the road, but. Um, yeah. And if none of that works, you can always turn it into like a licensing perk pyramid scheme. <laughs> I'm, I want to ask you to elaborate and simultaneously, I really, really don't want <laughs> A, myself to hear more, or B, my users to hear more. But go ahead, Joe. Tell me about the pyramid scheme. I mean, I've, I've seen software, particularly like software as a service companies, offer like referral codes to get your friends involved, that type of thing. Ah, I gotcha. But I'm not sure how effective any of that is. Like invite your friends and get a month free credit or something like that. Yeah. I think people would make fun of you for doing that more. I'm not <laughs> seriously suggesting that. Okay. And then in the last week... Um, one of my major stress sources has, has been resolved. And I am, of course, talking about Mac OS 7, Mac OS 11 support okay. for FM perception and FM comparison. It's like the sort of Damocles of operating systems. It's just been <laughs> hanging over your head for months. Yes. Especially since the first beta of the OS, it didn't work and was going to need some adjustment. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so as of the time of recording, there is an Apple event tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And if they follow the model from this year's iOS uh, and iPhone announcement, uh, Mac OS 11 might be out as soon as Wednesday. Yikes. I mean, that's what they did with iOS. It was like, hey, and the new OS is out tomorrow. And all the developers went nuts. If Apple puts more time in that schedule, maybe that's a minor mea culpa. But my guess is they're going to follow the same pattern. The release candidate's been out for, you know, a week or so. So, I mean, macOS Catalina's not even ready yet. <laughs> and it's been out for a year. <laughs> They can't possibly release this other thing, or they shouldn't. And I know they will, but still. Yeah, every you know three or four versions, there's a Mac OS 11, or there's a Mac OS version that you should probably just skip. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, everyone I know is still on Mojave. Yeah. And that's a good place to stay as long as you can. Like basically until Apple says this is like no longer supported and no longer receiving security updates. Should probably stay there. <laughs> so yeah, uh, FM perception and FM comparison both work on Intel and on Apple Silicon under Rosetta Two. Mm-hmm. Um, once I got everything, the the environment working, and so there isn't even a an update that I need to release for this. The base software of the latest versions of each of those applications works fine under mac os 11 um so i'm considering and reconsidering whether i want to make these applications silicon native okay um in theory that might introduce i mean depending upon what kind of hardware is released and things like that that might introduce a performance improvement and i'm all about faster performance. Um, It's a question of there's the development effort, which may be minimal. It may be as as simple as hitting the checkbox and saying, now make the native version. Mm -hmm. Um, It may be more elaborate. It may be complicated. The two applications have two entirely different code bases in two entirely different languages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would guess that FM can, FM perception would be easier to do because you're using all of Apple's native stuff. Yeah. But FM comparison, you need to make sure the browser is going to be supported. Mm-hmm. Any of the development tools that you're building the app with, any of the front end stuff. Yeah. Like I'm not sure if any of that stuff is going to even run. Like, can you even install NPM on an Apple Silicon Mac right now? I have no idea. <laughs> My guess is it probably works, but under Rosetta. Mm-hmm. There's also, I need the Visual Studio compilers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And then as I was thinking about this further in preparation for this conversation, I was also thinking about the fact that now there's going to be extra download buttons on the website. Like, I'm not making two versions of FM perception, I'm making three. Mm, yeah. And there's a Mac OS download link and a Windows download link and now a Mac OS if you're running an Apple Silicon machine. 
and it would the more I think about what would be involved in doing it, even if it's just a checkbox, that there's still a bunch of other stuff that I have to do to support it. Like it's an entirely different uh, update feed. Mm-hmm. I can't go to the same source. I have to prep that stuff. Um, you know, making sure that everything's available, and I've got to manage a third update feed. So I was under the impression that Universal 2 was supposed to address this, where you could release one binary that could be executed on your either environment. Oh. I was thinking so much about Rosetta, I forgot about Universal 2. Okay. Yeah. Right. So I think you can move your target to Universal 2 for a couple of years and then eventually just drop support for the Intel side. I mean, way down the line. Yeah. Particularly with the the FileMaker user community. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people supporting older systems on load. Older uh, FileMaker systems on older operating systems. Um, and so Intel machines are going to be active in the FileMaker community far longer than they are in the general developer community. Yeah, particularly because FileMaker is cross-platform, and while Windows has an ARM version, I don't see the x86 version of Windows going away within two decades. <laughs> like, I just don't see it happening. Yeah, particularly in business environments. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So now I've got to re-examine all of this from the perspective of Universal Two, but. That could simplify a lot of it. I think Universal 2 probably makes sense. So it'll just really be a question of how long do I have to wait? Like Apple's supporting it, but I also need Microsoft to support it because the mm-hmm. way FM comparison works. But the cool part is FM comparison runs fine on Apple Silicon under Rosetta 2. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not a huge concern. And it seemed... Pretty speedy. I didn't do side-by-side comparisons, but even if I did, I couldn't talk about it because of the way Apple's licensing yeah. for the DTK worked. And it wouldn't be fair, but it wouldn't, honestly. Yeah, it, it wouldn't make sense with machine. this anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, I couldn't identify any differences between the, um, the Intel and Rosetta applications running. Um, as far as things that weren't working or something like that. So from what I understand, getting your DTK and turning it on and building your apps is really easy and takes like five minutes. Is that correct? <laughs> uh, that has not been my experience. Hmm. Uh, especially when I was trying to get the release candidate on that machine. Because I, I, the first time I ran FM Perception on the DTK, it didn't work. And I mean, the, the app launched fine. It seemed fairly stable. You just couldn't do anything with it because of some sort of weird security problem. And like with most of these Mac things, if it doesn't work in the first beta, you probably don't want to immediately start rewriting your application. Yeah, Because a lot of that stuff is going to get fixed over the following couple of months. So I gave them a little while. 
and then got involved in other things and totally forgot about well didn't forget about it it was in the back of my head stressing me out but basically <laughs> forgot about it um for a while and now hey the release candidate is out now i really have to fix this and so i was like okay well let's just go to boot up that machine and um install the release candidate should be like two button presses and wait an hour right mm-hmm. no um, apparently the update process on that DTK had a lot of problems along the way. And so here's what you had to do to make it work. So you install the release candidate on an Intel machine. And See, so- step one of your ARM operating system is set it up on an Intel machine. It's not a good sign. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Leaving aside then the fact that there's only one computer that I've got that's got USB-C on it to make it easier to plug into the DTK, and that's my laptop. Mm -hmm. So I ended up installing that on a new volume on the MacBook, which I have to thank uh, Josh Ormond for that because I keep forgetting that making new volumes on a Mac hard drive is trivial. Yeah. As long as you've got available hard drive space, you can just use it. And when you're done using it, you can just throw it away and get all of that space back. My brain still thinks in terms of hard drive partitions Mm -hmm. and I just forget. So, uh, release candidate on the MacBook volume. And then install the latest, or basically the release candidate Xcode on that machine. And then launch it so that it can install its little additional stuff. And then install an Apple application called the Apple Configurator. And then reboot the machine. And now that it's up, you can use the Configurator to install the release candidate on Silicon. But it's not the same release candidate, it's a different file. You're not just installing the application like it's an external hard drive. And then you watch for the error message that says it didn't complete properly. (laughs) And then you reboot the silicon machine because it actually worked. It was Mm. just that when it was done installing that, it popped back up and tried to reconnect to the configurator. And the configurator couldn't find the connection and timed out. Error succeeded. (laughs) Basically, except it's got way more text in that message. Um, this also doesn't count the time that I spent trying other things before digging out the multi-page document from Apple on how to upgrade the operating system on a DTK. Um, so my guess is that's going to be simpler at some point. <laughs> but um, I, I don't believe that Apple would release a machine that you need another machine to be able to do updates. <laughs> But at the same time, I'm really confused why it stayed in this state this long. Like, how how did that not be one of the first things that they fixed? Step one, get it running. Step two, make it updatable. Mm-hmm. Like, that was one of the critical things that I wanted to fix when we were doing betas of FM comparison. Like... We've got to have the auto update system working and working well, even if the interface sucks. It's got to be basically one button press 
before anybody beyond you and me starts touching it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in total, this ended up da- involving downloading the Mac OS installer of one kind or another at least six times oh. from different sources and at least twice downloading the latest and greatest Xcode. It's a good thing you have fast internet. <laughs> Even with fast internet, that takes a long time. Um, and then, Not to mention unzipping Xcode. Yeah. That is actually the slowest process known to humans. <laughs> the, uh, the zip xip yeah mm-hmm. yeah and and the whole thing was involved enough that i had to keep kind of reminding myself because the idea would pop into my head and then i'd have to fight it back down that this has no impact on windows like it felt close enough to struggling against a new FileMaker version that i kept thinking okay and i'm as soon as i'm done with this i've got to do the windows updates there are no windows updates right and that cycle just continues over and over in your head. So I'm hoping that now that I can put the thing to sleep, I can put all of it to sleep, at least for a little while. Yeah. I mean, there is a Windows ARM version, but I don't think FileMaker supports it. So there's no reason for you to support it. Right. Um, yeah. And Windows, Microsoft just announced there just a couple months ago that they're working on x86 64-bit uh, emulation they've got 32-bit emulation working now but the 64-bit stuff doesn't work mm. so at that point you should be able to run filemaker and fm perception on a windows arm machine but i i don't know how many of those are in the world i don't think very many yeah uh, anyway I, the hamsters are running around in my head again um <laughs> so uh i i do also have real quick before i find out what Joe's been working on um, a, uh, a call for top call stats, language samples. Um, shortly. One of the things that I need to do on top call stats is um, expand its support for non-English languages. And there's a, there's a whole big thing here where basically this is a, a, a an analytic a server-side analytic export from FileMaker server that tells you what the FileMaker server is spending all of its time on. And some of the notations in this log file that's created are localized. So instead of table, it says tabula or whatever. And there's no answer key anywhere. (laughs) For what it is. And I could just, you know, do like a Google Translate and go, what is the Spanish word for table? But it might be a different word than the direct translation, just the generic table. Because their database table might have a, a different a word specifically for it or something like that. And even if it's not in Spanish, it might be in one of the other languages that FileMaker Server supports. So the only way that I have to find out what words FileMaker is using to describe the activities that it's doing is to actually do those activities on a server using that language and then generate a log file from it. Mm-hmm. And that is a humongous pain. So really, I just need 
developers in the community to send me sample files. Um, we've got built-in support for English and Italian, because while I was doing the development and testing it out, I had an Italian developer who was sending me files. And that's how I realized that it was going to be a problem in the first place. Um, I've also received samples for Spanish and German. So if anybody else out there in our listener group or your extended friend group from there knows of developers running servers in languages beyond those, I would very much like to get a hold of a top call stats. Hmm. Um, if for no other reason than the fact that once I dig into this code, I'll be in the brain space for that code and adding support for a fifth or sixth language will be basically trivial at that point. Whereas if I get those sample files four months later, it'll be much more involved. So it's one of the things that I'm going to be tackling upcoming. And I wanted to get as many languages out of the way as I could. Yeah. I run my server in Klingon. So I'm not sure that's how I do. <laughs> So, Joe, what have you been doing? So, a little bit of FM comparison and a little bit of database stuff. Mm -hmm. So, FM comparison side, um, people who have received the beta will notice there's some new buttons for advanced configuration stuff. And none of those buttons do anything useful in the beta. But in the version that I have, they do. And uh, the feature is not quite done. There's still some communication to the back end. Mm -hmm. that needs to be done. But we've added features for basically category group selection. So when you're running a comparison, you can say, I don't want these categories. I do want these. And they'll be omitted from the UI and also from the uh, XML parsing and diffing on the back end. We've also done two other screens, one for linking rules. So basically which matching criteria are you using? And then also a section called relevant changes that uh, just includes just a list of things that users may or may not want included in their diffs. So the features themselves on paper sound relatively simple. <laughs> Building the UIs for them. Um, the UI c controls themselves were relatively simple. The data structures for all this stuff is kind of a much bigger deal. And the categories was the most detailed because we've already got categories stored in a very particular way, driving the entire front end of the of the UI. So we can't just really rip that out at this point. So I had to kind of build an interface around that or basically a bunch of JavaScript functions to convert that data structure to a display structure that then we that then builds into a serialization structure that can be sent to the back end. But there are multiple instances of that because we've also got like the difference between the application default settings, user-defined settings, currently selected unsaved settings that are going to be applied to the comparison, and then the actual data that's backing all of that. So when you go to like category selection, there are four different arrays of categories involved in that single what looks like a very simple <laughs> HTML table. <laughs> And that's before the data even gets to Dave to actually do something with. Yes. So yeah, that part, it it was relatively easy to design. It took quite a while to work through all of the kind of edge cases and 
you know, if I if I'm looking at the application default and I uncheck a box, it needs to change to user default. And if that selection already matches the saved user default, then don't show a save button. But if it doesn't match that, then do show a save button so that they can save it as user default. But what happens if they create some unsaved changes, go back to the screen, then come back? Do we reload from their saved user default or from the active user active user defined that they were just editing? Like there's just all these little things. Uh-huh. So yeah, it's done ish. And uh, <laughs> at this point, I'm just waiting on Dave to Basically, I've got functions that will report data to him and just need him to wire up where those functions go so he can actually pull that data into the back end to save it. And then some other functions that will run on startup to get data from the back end and pull it out. And uh, yeah, it's, I think that's the, the last major feature of the beta. Um, I can't say that definitively. David and I can have a meeting to talk over our list, but I don't think there's anything else on my list that wasn't on the someday maybe list for after version one. Yeah. So I think this is the last new feature for the beta, aside from any Yes. The the, new the, feature the last new feature. Um I've still got to wrap up layout objects. Mm-hmm. But so, that yeah. doesn't substantively involve you at this point. So yeah, that's what I've been working on there. Um, I may still take another crack at that. Right now, there's all of this is in a user data module, a Vuex store module, and it's getting unwieldy enough. I may actually break that out into separate modules for each interface just to make it simpler. But it's not. It's that's developer coding. <laughs> like it's not important to the structure of the app. Yeah. But I think long term it would probably be easier to maintain that if they were in separate modules. Uh, refactoring is always fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the other stuff I've been working on, really, I've been kind of busy with work, work. So working on Dave's project, working on two other consulting projects. And I mentioned last summer that I was doing like a, a custom web publishing PHP migration to the new FileMaker data API. I got all of the work done and then we didn't deploy it because the customer is a school and we needed to make a bunch of really rapid changes in the summer to accommodate chaos in the world (laughs) and the new school attendance system for this year. So we put all of that aside, made a bunch of changes to the shipping version and then now I need to kind of revisit um, integrating those new changes into the development version for the migrated version. And basically I've got, you know, it's November 9th and I need to do this during the holiday break in December. And I need to deploy it then. So I've got a couple of weeks to get the changes done and rolled out or ready to roll out. So the thing I've been stuck with really isn't writing code, it's dealing with servers. So when I did this the first time, I was using a different Mac that is no longer here. Actually, no, it was a different router that is no longer here. And ever since my new router got here, I had some problems with the internet and they replaced the modem and the router. I have not been able to get my FileMaker development server accessible outside of my home network. 
So I can host things on it locally and do like FileMaker development on it, but I can't actually do any custom web publishing with it. So I have not been able to get that working. And I I decided to set up like a, a, uh, a duplicate file on their production server and see if I can get it working there, but I can't get the REST API working on their server yet. <laughs> um, so I've, got, I've actually got a meeting this weekend with uh, a friend who's going to help me troubleshoot some of this stuff, but I think it has something to do with the way this macOS server has been managed. They're actually deployed in production on a macOS server, which isn't really supported. Like Apple's always been kind of wishy-washy about, or FileMaker's always been kind of wishy-washy about that. Of like, yes, it works for development, but you should really deploy it on a Windows server and now a Linux server or FileMaker Cloud. Like they don't really suggest using FileMaker servers in production on, uh, on Mac. Hmm. But I think it has something to do with the web server on that Mac interfering with FileMaker's web server. So hmm. we need to just go over it and see if there's any anything else on it. Like they they don't necessarily listen to Joe when I say you need to have a server doing literally nothing else. <laughs> they never do. Yeah. So like I'll, I'll remote into it and there'll be like, you know, YouTube videos playing. And I'll like open a sticky and write shame, shame, <laughs> and leave it on the desktop. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, I've done that more than once. It's It's funny. I also send them chocolates at Christmas so I can get away with it. <laughs> There's, there is tons of, of pain and trouble that customers will forgive in exchange for chocolate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really effective. Yeah. So I'm working on that stuff. Um, on my Vera Sandbox, I was making a little bit of progress and I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I made like a MySQL database for some of my stuff. And I was working with that and it's fine, but there are so many things I wanted to do with it, um, with that data that doesn't involve the, the VR project. So, you know, I was thinking like I could make web UIs for this stuff, but I don't really want to. Like, that's not really the point of any of this stuff. I just want this stuff accessible on the desktop and my phone relatively easily. So I decided to put the SQL database on hold and just make a FileMaker database and then kind of knock out two birds with one stone. Um, so I've got this problem with my dev server locally and I need to have a development server that I can use for the rest of this migration. And I would need a, a FileMaker backend for some of my side projects. So I just got a FileMaker web hosting account with someone else this weekend and set up a server there. It's not cheap, like it's $100 a month mm -hmm. for a Windows server. Um, I thought about the Linux route, but it's I think it's still too early and I still need access to some of the stuff that the Linux version of FileMaker server doesn't have. Yeah. So I'll probably keep this for a couple of months and maybe a year or two down the line, look at migrating over to Linux um, for everything. But th this makes it a lot easier for me to do I don't know, kind of like dummy endpoints because the the making an endpoint in FileMaker server on the data API is basically just making a layout and putting fields on there. And I can kind of be a lot more creative with how I structure that than having to worry about 
you know, doing all kinds of SQL joins and all that stuff for complicated things. So I'm still going to do the backend in PHP, but instead of the MySQL and PHP data objects, I'll just use the connection to FileMaker server there to pull objects in. So I'll still have a bunch of backend endpoints on the web server in PHP, but each of those will be talking to FileMaker to get their data and to post their data. And it should give me a lot more flexibility to do stuff without having to worry about doing a bunch of front-end UI code basically just for myself. And mm -hmm. then I just want to be working on the, the VR side of that. So been working on that stuff. Really, I've just been like, I got it hosted and got it working and then just been kind of rebuilding my database and getting it into a usable state. There's a bunch of features I want to move there from other apps and services and just been kind of getting rid of lots of stuff, lots of subscriptions and apps and things like that. And just kind of consolidating everything into either my database or Office 365 account as much as possible. So code-wise, I didn't really spend much time the last couple of weeks writing any Babylon or VR code. I spent a little bit playing with kind of, I mentioned my issues with like, I don't really understand how to structure Babylon JS code at this point. Mm -hmm. um, everything seems to be happening inside one create scene function. And it seems like you, from what little I understand about it, you, you create this function, define attributes about the scene, and then you basically just set the scene in motion and it runs until you stop it. So at that point, once you add everything to the scene, um, you're basically listening for events and those events can add other stuff to the scene, but you can't actually just like do a scene dot, you know, create box method from outside of that structure. You're doing it all from in this kind of event loop interface. And it's kind of, it's hard to talk about because I don't really understand it. Um, but I don't want to just literally write all the code in one place. Like some of these scenes are going to get very complicated. So I started playing with JavaScript classes and modules. Modules are relatively easy in this context. I'm just defining some JavaScript and then exporting it and then importing it where I need it and referencing it in that create scene function. The classes was a bit more complicated because turns out I don't know anything about JavaScript classes. <laughs> and I spent better part of a weekend banging my head on like, okay, I can write a function here. I can pass it as a callback or as a parameter into this function that's then going to use it as a callback in this function on this object when it's added to the scene. But I was running into that, this isn't this in this context, but it is this in that context problem, <laughs> which is not confusing in the least. <laughs> yeah, this, the, the this keyword in JavaScript does not act the same way that similar keywords work in most object-oriented environments. Yeah. Which was, that was what was throwing me off. I think if I had never learned Swift or C Sharp, I wouldn't be having this issue. But I'd already developed an expectation of how that should work. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't work that way. Uh, honestly, you'd probably bump into the same problem if all you had done was JavaScript. Really? Because it's still, 
this works exactly the way you expect it to work in all other contexts that I know of. I'm sure there are ones that it don't. But in general, in all the other contexts, except for when you're in a callback. Yeah. It it works differently there. Or or the same to a very, very specific definition of same. Yeah. So like in FileMaker terms, essentially what I was doing was passing a function parameter the value of another function but what i wanted to be doing was passing the function parameter a reference to another function to be used later where it was the opposite now i don't even know <laughs> um but yeah i i showed it to dave after a meeting last week and he's like, oh yeah it's just a simple fix you just you set a variable in outside of the scope of the callback in this case it was just like let dot blah equals this and then blah dot function callback rather than doing it on this so basically i'm saying evaluate it now don't pass it later and evaluate it in some future version of this evaluate it now when you're executing this code so what i was trying to do was basically pass an id from the class so you know the class re represents a, a data item with an id from the database i want to pass that database id into the callback to be used later but I, I i have it now on the class i won't have it a reference to it when the callback is executed so i needed to get it to execute during the creation of the object yeah so yeah not confusing at all <laughs> The good news is the solution is very simple. The mm -hmm. bad news is that it's difficult to describe the problem you're having in such a way to Google the appropriate answer to the problem. Yeah, it's some, like there needs to be, we need like a keyboard that you can just squeeze really hard while shouting and <laughs> Google should be able to turn that into the appropriate like, development <laughs> search. Now, now that's an AI effort that I would get behind. Yeah, that's some machine learning. Like I have no idea how to describe this problem, but I can I can inflict pain on my keyboard. Can you turn that into anything? What, what you're listening for is the particular rhythm of inflections of the expletives, mm -hmm. and based upon that, infer whether you're dealing with a JavaScript <laughs> or a Swift problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I figure you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out that each particular computer problem has a fingerprint based upon the level of aggression and annoyance the developer is experiencing at the particular moment. And those can be mapped and, you know, Bayesian fit. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> when somebody asked me what I do for a living, I said I have like ir irrational outbursts at a computer screen. <laughs> pretty much my job. So anyway, there's another, yet another Apple event tomorrow. Mm -hmm. This time, I would imagine the Mac event where they're going to announce the new Apple Silicon Macs, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. I know we we talked about the last event and I mentioned that I might get a new phone based on what they unveiled. And I did get a new phone, but it wasn't any of the new phones. <laughs> I ended up getting the uh, 
downgrading to the iPhone SE after a couple years on a tennis max. And it was a pretty good call. It's small and actually like touch ID way better than the face ID. It's just generally more reliable and faster. And I like using the home button for app switching more than the swipey stuff. Mm -hmm. So yeah, pretty good call. So what machines, machine or machines, do you think are going to be Apple's first released Apple Silicon machines? So this is the thing. This event is really interesting because it's the first Apple Silicon Mac, but I don't think they're going to introduce any particularly interesting machines this time. So I think this conversion process will have been really interesting in a while, but I think they're going to just kind of come out with a meh, it's a new laptop that's almost exactly like our normal laptops with kind of the message of it's just as good, but now it's faster or now it has longer battery or both. Right. But a I MacBook don't think, Pro with 14 hours of battery life or something. Yeah. I don't think they're going to like reinvent the wheel at this point. Um, so I doubt there's anything that most developers are going to want to rush out and buy other than like software testing. But yeah, I don't know. I would love to see more like a two-in-one touchscreen device, but who knows? Yeah, I was more just thinking like particular models and such. Like, yeah. do you think they release a mini? The minis yeah. have a tendency to, to be trailing indicators. Yeah. They're I usually think... not cutting edge. Yeah, whatever they're releasing, it's a laptop. I don't even think they're going to touch iMacs or Mac Minis or Mac Pros for a while. Okay. Because the laptops just outsell everything in such huge numbers. So, yeah, most people, when you say, you know, a Mac or Windows computer, they mean laptop now. The amount of, I know, aside from developers, I don't know anybody who has a desktop yeah. of any variety other than software developers. I... Even the, the three guys who own an IT company all use laptops. <laughs> I, I know a couple of non-developers. I only know one, it's not really a non-technical person, but a a user. Mm -hmm. I, I know prosumers with desktops, but most users, almost every user I know has a laptop. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my guess is almost certainly one of the laptops, <clears throat> maybe even, um, you know, a new MacBook One or maybe the Airs. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the Airs seems like the logical choice because it's a really popular computer that people like. Mm -hmm. So why not do that one first? Yeah. Kind of use its popularity to sell the new silicon stuff. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing performance numbers. Mm -hmm. Apple actually getting them and people being able to actually talk about them. Yeah, so I wonder if they're going to release parallel product lines. So if they if they make new Apple Silicon MacBook Pros, are they going to continue to release updated MacBook Pros alongside them and sell them at the same time with the same price or different prices? Oh, or do they say, you know, the 2019 MacBook Pro is the last Intel one? 
I like in in Apple's model the way they've been doing stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if the 2019 MacBook Pro might continue to be sold, mm-hmm. but I don't know that it ever gets another speed bump. Yeah, that's what I mean. For ones like that haven't they're... swapped, like the the iMac, I could see the iMac getting a performance bump on the Intel side before it gets its silicon version, but I also don't think they'll market it at all. It'll mm-hmm. be one of those quiet bumps. Yeah. And even that I'm not sure about. Yeah. So I don't think they're going to release a new computer that I want tomorrow, but I do want a new computer <laughs> because my computer is cursed. I think we've talked about this yeah. over the summer, but I, I continue to have really messed up issues with this particular Mac that I haven't had with previous ones. And I'm to the point now where I've I've factory restarted it, rebooted it so many times, like there is now like an ever persistent volume that I can't unmount and can't delete, just called update. It just contains a full version of Catalina that I just can't get rid of. Like I can boot in recovery mode and delete it. And then when I log back in, it's back. And it's just, yeah, it's a mess. Actually, I think I just saw a volume called update on one of the machines that I would, it was either the the laptop that was driving the silicon update or the DTK. Mm-hmm. Crap. Yeah. Okay. And this is the same computer that, like when I install NPM and Node and Node modules, and then I install something that needs global scope, like the Vue CLI, I can install it. The install logs work. I see the files where they're supposed to be. I can't actually use any of those global functions in the terminal. So if I need to make a new project at this point, my workflow is pathetic enough where I go to the other computer, go to the Windows computer, make a project, commit it into source, and then come to the Mac to download it if I want to work on it on the Mac. But I literally can't make a new project for any of the stuff that's using like the Vue CLI or the Nuxt stuff or, yeah. That's that's competitive with having to use my laptop to update my DTK. Yeah. That's, yeah. Hmm. So I would love to get a new computer. Um, I'm not sure if I need to. Like I, these are these are annoying issues, but they're not necessarily show-stopping issues. Yeah. But the other nice thing about making that decision that I did a couple months ago of not doing native development is I no longer need a high-end machine for mm-hmm. any of this stuff. Like just writing front-end code, I'm never taxing the CPU. The, yeah. the most taxing thing I do over a two-week period is actually editing the podcast. And that's only you know two hours of every two weeks. So I could go down to a you know Mac Mini or MacBook Air. Maybe not all the way to a MacBook Air, but like an entry-level MacBook Pro, a yeah. smaller one, as opposed to the beefiest thing I could afford at the time. Yeah, or maybe just a speed-bumped Air. Yeah. Well, I'm, it's oddly, I, I was thinking about it today, and I oddly, this is probably one of the Apple presentations I'm, I've am i been more excited about than most oh, yeah. of their recent stuff. Yeah, this is definitely a bigger deal than the other events we saw this year. Cool. I'm psyched. 